Good evening, good evening, good evening, internet audience. It is us. It is true. It is true. There were so many rumors that we had died, <laughs> that some terrible thing had befallen us, that we had fallen victim to COVID or snowpocalypse or both. But our fans are rejoicing. Our enemies are upset because this heretical life has returned. As always, I am Brian Thomas, and I am joined by my much handsomer sounding co-host, Adam Leggett. Adam, I know you survived Snowpocalypse because I've talked to you and I'm talking Ooh. to you now, but right. exactly how well did you survive the great Snowpocalypse? Uh, well, with less sleep than I would like, but uh, you know, other than that, we managed pretty well. Because of my job, I spent a lot of, uh, yeah, let's see, my first shift was 30-something hours. Gosh. Because yeah, you're, you, I mean, you, was... you're you're one of the people that your job is, like you have the responsibility of trying to make sure that the world can some, at least somewhat, still function during the snowpocalypse. <laughs> right, right. So I mean, you're not not driving like a salt truck, but uh, you know, or a snowplow. Like literally, a snowplow drove down our street one day, and I thought about going out there and cheering, but right. Well, technically, I do drive a snowplow. It's just not on the street, like so, because I oh, work that's at right. a, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I work at an airport. For those of you that don't know, and uh, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, whether it's because of uh, like medevac kind of uh, traffic, or whether it's you know military planes, things like that. We've got it all there at the airport, so uh, you got to keep the thing cleaned off. Yeah, medevac and military and things that he can't disclose. <laughs> Exactly. I'm not saying UFOs, but I'm not not saying UFOs. Right, right. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, well, uh, we are back. It's been a bit. We had you had some technical difficulties uh, on your end. Had a ton of like personal difficulties on my end between like finals, and then I had a moot court tournament I was in. And, and then I think we tried a couple times and like had computer problems and network problems, but we're back and we're going to give a special episode where we actually talk about two sacraments in one as mm. we wind up uh, or get ready to wind up this little series on the sacraments. Today we've got a uh, holy unction and then uh, the holy orders. And then that'll set up what'll be our grand finale of this sacramental series where we talk about the Eucharist, which we've, mm. we've kind of been saving for last. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but these two, uh, Holy Unction and Holy Orders, just going by the names, I, I would imagine if I walked up to somebody and said, do you know what Holy Unction is? Most people wouldn't know. But if I started to describe it, it's one of those things that I, has, I think... Um, it's more common or you, you do see it in like some Protestant or I'll put it this way. I, I encountered this at least a couple of times in Baptist circles, although we just didn't call it that. Sure. Um, so it's one that by its name, I don't think many people in our audience outside of, of Orthodox or Catholics are going to recognize. But when we get down and start describing it, I think people will recognize kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, when was the first time you heard the term? Holy unction, Adam. Um, well, honestly, even now I don't hear it very often. So this is <laughs> this is one of those things where East and West they just have different terminologies uh, for it. But we just call it the anointing of the sick most of the yeah. time. Uh, but holy unction, either one works. 
Uh, it's the same same general idea or principle. So first time, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Uh, well, like you said, you know, growing up, there was something we wouldn't have called it a sacrament. And we can deal with why it is a sacrament in a little while, uh, why it's a, a means of grace, you know, that has the mm-hmm. capacity to not only heal our bodies, but do a number on our souls as well. Uh, but we did have something similar to it, you know, in our Southern Baptist worlds that we grew up in. Uh, but honestly, it's probably, I don't know, somewhere along the lines of, uh, it was probably one of the, I don't want to say the least important, but one of the, the last things that I really kind of dealt with entering into the church, maybe because we did have something that was really similar to it, you know, in our, uh, you know, the worlds we grew up in, but like anointing the sick, this kind mm-hmm. of idea of when somebody's, well, like James talks about, we'll get to that in just a second, but somebody's sick, call the elders, you know, they'll anoint you with oil, pray over you, that kind of thing. Um, that was not something that I, I really wrestled with as far as like whether it was a deal or not. Uh, I, again, I don't mean to treat it flippantly, but just in the, my journey, it wasn't something that was... It wasn't a stumbling block for me. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah. a hurdle. Uh, by the time, so by the time I really started looking into it or dealing with it on a, like a theological level, it was pretty close to when I was already fisting to join the church. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was very similar uh, for me. It was. It was something that I had seen practiced. Um, I don't think when I was a pastor, I don't recall ever being asked or, or ever you know, uh, anointing someone with oil and praying over them. Um, but I'd certainly seen it done. In fact, I recall, um, one of my brothers and I won't say which one, uh, just in case they're opposed to such things. Although I very much doubt they would remember it, which I guess I just narrowed it down to two of my brothers. (laughs) (laughs) But one of my younger brothers, um, and I don't remember why, but was sick, had, had some sort of, recurring health issue and so um i think it was the deacons uh which you and i enlightened as we are now know that deacons and elders are not the same thing mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> the deacons came i i think and the pastor of the church as well and and prayed for him and had some you know some anno- uh, some oil that they you know uh, put on his forehead i don't remember it's funny now because i think back and i think did they like put it on his head like the 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 sign of the cross i don't think they did i don't i don't really think they would have but they prayed for him and, and anointed him with oil and it very much just kind of right straight out of james five like you like you alluded to earlier so <clears throat> once i started sort of adopting the sacramental mindset then you know coming across this in orthodox theology and orthodox teaching that this was or is a sacrament it was kind of like, well, once once you're okay with things being sacramental, then this this one just seems to kind of naturally fall into that category because right. even in James' description of it in James chapter five, when he says, um, and maybe you were planning on reading it later, but I'm gonna go ahead and read it now. Go for is it. anyone among you suffering? Uh, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with uh, with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, 
and the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It's one of those passages where, uh, and the description of it, the, the, the sort of the physical part of it and the spiritual aspect of it are so intertwined that once you get to the place where you sort of accept the idea of sacraments, this one just sort of leaps out at you because James' <laughs> presentation of it is very sacramental in the sense that here's a spiritual application. There's this physical thing you're doing. Here's how God works spiritually and mystically through the physical thing you're doing of anointing this person with oil. Right. But as all good Baptists, you know, we took the spiritual and the physical, stripped them apart and said, well, you know, they don't really have anything to do with each other. Yeah. Which is, but it also seems like any time if you're a Baptist or, or someone similar to a Baptist, if you do this, if you anoint somebody with oil and you pray over them, aren't you, aren't you just like admitting by doing the thing that they're, that they're not so disconnected? Well, but you have to, I mean, uh, it, I mean, if you're going to take it at face value, yes. But then, like, whenever I would baptize somebody, you know, you when you do it, you have to say, okay, now I know this passage makes it sound like that it's connected to the forgiveness of your sins. But we know that that's not what James means. Mm. Right? Yeah. So it, it, there, there's this presupposition that you have to bring to the text. I mean, I, I would argue now, right, uh, in order to divorce the two from each other. So just like with baptism, okay, well, yeah, brother, you know, brother Saul, why do you tarry, get up, be baptized, wash away your sins? But whenever you get to that text in a sermon, you have to say, well, guys, we know that that's not how it really works. Mm. And so when you deal with James, you have to do the same thing. You have to say, okay, I know that it seems like on a surface level that this anointing of oil for this person who's sick, it sounds like it has some connection to the state of their soul, um, but we know that that's not really how it works. So it, it really it, it comes down to your presupposed theological framework that you that you bring to the text. Hmm. I mean, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know how else to get around it. Like, it, it, I don't know how to look at these passages and, and, uh, and, and force these two concepts apart unless you, you come with this, again, this preconceived idea that they can't be together. Yeah. 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 It, it... And it's one of those moments, I guess, um, or or one of those, I hate to say one of those kinds of things, because I feel like I say that a lot, but it really is, you, you've read this passage and passages like this one, well, I mean, we've read them all of our lives. I, I remember memorizing uh, most of the book of James when I was probably six, seven, um, memorizing it with my brothers, six, seven, eight, in that, you know, uh, over a course of time. And so being familiar with these verses um, and never once thinking 
that oh this well that's weird what wait he, they're anointing him with oil and his, his sins are being forgiven well, you know they're anointing him with oil and he's he's being healed but now reading it it's like oh look here's this perfect example of how the physical and the spiritual are are intertwined and and right. And in Orthodox theology, reading, uh, I've got a, a catechism of, of Orthodoxy, uh, and was reading over the passage that talks about this. And in Orthodoxy, and, and I'm, I assume in Catholicism as well, um, but in Orthodoxy, it's just, there's this idea of, well, of course, if you're sick, we're going to pray for the healing of your sins as well, because sickness and sin are, are together. Like it doesn't, the Orthodox Ooh. Church doesn't, doesn't teach that, well, anytime you, are sick it's like because you sinned and this sort of like punitive like because you did sin x you are sick with y right but it's like you well if it wasn't for sin you would not be sick not saying that because you sinned you are sick but yeah. sickness and sin are they're, they they can't be disconnected from each other so if you're sick right. of course we're going to come pray for you and we're going to anoint you with oil and we're also going to pray for forgiveness of sins and that God removes sin from you because, because they're connected, you know, they're, they're, they're right. intertwined and orthodoxy just sort of has this. I have a feeling if you walked up to an Orthodox priest and asked like, why do you do this? Like, why do you pray for someone's sins to be forgiven when they're also sick? That the Orthodox priest would just kind of look at you with this expression of, I can't even understand why you're asking me that question. You know, right. like it, it's so, so obvious uh, in the, in the Orthodox faith. Sure. It almost seems like, and again, this is probably not entirely fair, but it almost seems like, okay, both uh, like traditional Christianity, like ancient tr Christianity, and then like the pro from you know the Protestant world, and I say Protestant, like, let's just be specific, like Southern Baptist or Baptist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like both have this presupposed understanding of how. God relates to the world and how we relate to God. One, when you get to passages like this, requires you to kind of separate things out and explain why it it's not really what it seems like. And then the other has this presupposed understanding of theology and how the world works and all this kind of stuff, where they read this passage and... They don't even blink an eye. Mm. It's just like, oh yeah, sure. And I, I, I think you know, kind of going back to one of the reasons why I, I chose to become Catholic and felt like God was calling me to that is because of that key difference, right? Like, I, I felt like I was, I was tired of preaching and teaching with this view that required me to explain why the Bible didn't really mean what it sounded like it meant. Yeah. And it's just kind of, you could just, I, I don't know, now it just feels like I can take a deep breath when I get to passages like this. You know, I, I can read James 5 and read it and be like, oh yeah, makes sense. And then, and be grateful and just kind of move on. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you said um, as well that both 
Baptist, because we talk a, a lot about, and we just were a minute ago, you know, kind of the Baptist presuppositions, presuppositions we had when we would read scripture. And then we talk about what our Orthodox faith is like and what our, what our Catholic faith is like. But you, you just said, I think it's really important to say, uh, and that we say it out loud for the benefit of our listeners and for ourselves, that we admit, and maybe we should admit more often, mm, that, the, yeah. that we have, as Orthodox and Catholic, we have presuppositions when we read Scripture. For sure. Um, I think it's really easy to, to create this idea, and, we, and, a, and I, at least I know, I, I've contributed to it, that, well, if you just read the Bible with an open mind, you're going to become orthodox you're going to become catholic and i I don't think that's true sure um and and i think what you mentioned is like well we have presuppositions as well is is 100 accurate Mm -hmm. and for me anyway the big a big struggle or a big turning point was when i i really kind of had to sit down and say okay well this passage it's in it's sort of ambiguous like i it could mean this, what that the Baptists say that it means, or it could mean this, that the Orthodox and the Catholics say that it means. And so then I had to decide, well, which presupposition am I going to trust? Mm-hmm. Which one am I going to give weight to? Right. Um, and, and that's really, uh, a kind of, I think, the turning point and the key, the key thing is like when we read this passage in James, where he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him call for the elders of the church. They're going to pray over him. They're going to anoint him with oil. Um, and the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. Am I going to read that with a Baptist tinted presupposition and try and sort of take these, what from a Baptist view are, are sort of disparate elements of like, you know, the spiritual aspect and this physical aspect and try to explain how they are close, but not, you know, not really directly related or connected. Like, oil doesn't actually heal you Mm. oil doesn't actually forgive your sins or am i going to take the the orthodox presupposition and say no it it absolutely makes sense in the economy of god in the in the philosophy that god gives us it absolutely makes sense that a guy could make the sign of the cross on your forehead with his thumb dipped in oil and that's going to heal you um (laughs) so you have to come at it with a presupposition of i need this to sort of make rational sense to like a, a, a modernistic viewpoint, or you have to come at it with this presupposition of, I don't need it to necessarily make sense that way because I believe, uh, I believe in a sacramental approach to really a sacramental approach to interpreting scriptures. And they're, mm-hmm. they're both a set of presuppositions. I think the real um, interrogation comes from, do you, First of all, you can recognize that you have a presupposition. And then two, which presupposition do you want? Which presupposition does it make the most sense to use? Right. This one that you sort of find or inherit or build on from the earliest writings and teachings of the church or one that's based on, you know, sort of a um, more of a modernistic, scientific, rationalistic view of, of mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Let's talk for just a second about, like a reminder real quick of what a sacrament is and then why or how the anointing of sick is sacramental. In, and, and maybe maybe I'm uh, 
shooting ourselves in the foot, like this whole, <laughs> like this idea of that it, you know, just approaching it and accepting it, you know, for what it is. Um, and that may be the difference here between, at least a little bit between, you know, the East and the West, right? Like we, here in the West, we love to explain things and try to figure it out. <laughs> uh, but I was, you know, as a reminder, you know, sacraments are ordinary things that God, by his, in his mercy, gives to us and blesses them so that he can use them in extraordinary ways to communicate grace to our lives. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yeah. was, is it a fair statement? Yeah, so, yeah, I think so. So baptism, water, it's an ordinary thing, right? But we believe that God has taken that ordinary thing and by his sovereign will chosen it, blessed it, so that when we are baptized, right, as a sacrament, it it communicates extraordinary grace to our lives. Marriage is the same way, so on and so forth. Um, I've been trying to listen through the Bible in a year. There's a podcast. I think we talked about this, actually, mm-hmm. uh, last yeah. time we were together. But there's a podcast I've been listening to uh, by Father Mike Schmitz. Uh, it's the Bible in a Year podcast. It's really good. You should definitely check it out, listeners, if you, um, you know, find it easier maybe to process or find time. Uh, you know, and to, for our Baptist friends, it's proof that Catholics read the Bible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or at least listen to it. Or at least listen to it. I mean, it's a Catholic guy reading it, so at least he's reading it and Catholics are listening to it. So. Exactly. Exactly. Um, he dealt with when I was listening through and got to the section in Genesis 3, I believe it is, where the fall takes place. He he mentions at the end when he's given his little devotional thought uh, for the day's readings, he talks about how that when God comes to the serpent, he curses the serpent. He, he explicitly says, cursed are you. But when he talks to Adam and Eve, he doesn't use that language. Hmm. And to make a short point, he, he basically says that, you know, so many times when we read this passage in Scripture, we get this kind of mentality that God's this angry, pissed-off God who's just looking to, you know, uh, take off some heads, right? So when he gets to Adam and Eve, he's like, okay, I'm going to show you, you know. But Father Mike makes the point that God doesn't say that the labor in the field or pain in childbirth is going to be a curse for them. He doesn't say that like he does to the serpent. And and he makes the point that, you know, God is a loving father, right? He wants us to be made holy and to be redeemed. And so often God allows us and even gives us suffering, but uses it to transform us. So a perfect example is... Um, you know, Eve, right? He says you're going to experience pain in childbirth and so on and so forth. But it's also through childbirth that God brings the Messiah, mm-hmm. right? Because he tells her, he says, through your seed, talking to the woman. Um, so when we get to the New Testament, one commentator I, I, was, uh, I was reading when I was trying to learn a little bit more about unction was he said, he said basically the same thing. It's like, why is holy unction a sacrament? Because everyone suffers. Everyone gets sick. And God 
again, this is just his take, but I thought it was good, good food for the soul, right, or good thoughts. He's like, God has chosen to use suffering to redeem us, right? He did it in Christ on the cross, ultimately, right? That's the ultimate yeah. uh, example we have. But he also chooses to do it in our everyday lives. So in this sacrament, we experience suffering, and through oil that God, that the priest has blessed, God sanctifies our suffering, or, or he... Um, he he works through our suffering to redeem us so that it's not just pointless. You know, just just like, you know, there's a lot of people that are married, right, that are lost or out in the world, and, you know, marriage doesn't sanctify them, right? Mm-hmm. At least not in the way we experience in the church. Um, but if we have uh, experienced the sacram- a sacramental marriage, Right, it's God putting His blessing upon the marriage, and saying, "I'm going to use this to save your soul." Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the same way, when we are are sick, right, God has chosen to use this common element of oil, and blessed it, and used it so that when it's applied in a sacramental way in our lives, when we're sick, that our sickness becomes restorative and redemptive. It's not yeah. just it's not just sickness anymore because through this sacrament, we experience God's grace in our suffering and it transforms it into something that's uh, sanctifying for us. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I thought that was really, I mean, I, I never really thought through it like that before, mm-hmm. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody out there that's <laughs> like Father, my, my, the priest that married us, he listens to this, I think, every once in a while. Him or, or your priest, Father John. While, so, yeah. Uh, probably probably rip all that I said to shreds but it's uh you know I, I don't know I just I thought that was so beautiful I think it is and and I was reading um some about about this and one of the things that I read that that stuck out with me from I think this is from the Greek Orthodox uh, Archdiocese where it says when one is ill and in pain, this can very often be a time of life when one also feels alone and isolated. And the sacrament of the anointing of the sick or holy unction, as it is also known, reminds us that when we are in pain, either physical, emotional, or spiritual, Christ is present with us through the ministry of his church. He is among us to offer strength and to meet the challenges of life and even the approach of death. And, and I was thinking about how that what it's that that first line about how when you're ill or you're in pain can also be when you feel very alone and very isolated mm. and here's the sacrament that God has given us that mandates companionship it mandates yeah. community that when you are at this low low point it's not not that there are really any sacraments that the priest just like phones in but like the priest, you have to be physically present with someone, right here. Um, and and I was thinking when you, when you're talking about and and the Orthodox also teach like I I, I read it here and and also in the Catechism it's like look, this isn't it's not like magic. If you're sick or you're hurting, the priest is going to come. He'll pray over you. He'll anoint you with oil. And there's this sort of paradox of saying on the one hand, 
when this happens, you're absolutely being restored. Um, because God is using this this oil, He's using the prayers of His saints, he's using the the prayers of the bishop of the the priest, or ideally it's it's a bishop. Um, or if they do like the there's a service of holy unction that the Orthodox do on uh, I think Great uh, Great and Holy Wednesday, where it's like supposed to be seven bishops that that do it. Hmm. Um, it's really difficult I think to to find a place where they have seven bishops, you know, just sure. like lying around. Um, I've got a couple in my chest set, but the priest says those don't count. Um, <laughs> but when when it happens, the, the Orthodox are, are very clear to say, look, it's not a guarantee that when it's done, you're going to stand up like, oh, I feel better. Right. But what you were just saying about how it's this, this sanctification of our suffering, I also think about, I think it's in First Peter where he says, um, I, you know, through my suffering, I fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ or something like that. And there, there's passages throughout the rest of that epistle about how when we suffer, uh, and it's not just when you suffer for righteousness sake, but just when you suffer, hmm. um, you are, you are experiencing this sort of unity with Christ. And so I kind of think like a logical extension of that, like the sanctification of our suffering, that if you're sick or you're hurting uh, and, and in orthodoxy, doesn't have to. It's not just like physically sick. Like it's, you can be sick. It says in mind, body, or, or spirit. And the priest comes and prays and anoints you with oil. You know, I think we all hope, and when we if we have the priest, or the bishop come do that, that we're going to have this sort of, you know, oh, we're going to feel better right away. Right, right. But what if you don't? Well, if you don't, then what? what does that mean as an extension of all we've talked about, except that God is saying not so much, I'm going to restore you from this suffering right in this moment, but I'm going to restore you through this suffering mm-hmm. in this moment and the next moment and the next moment. So is it almost a sort of promise or recognition from God that whatever it is that the, 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 the malady the person is experiencing is being used of God in some way to, to work, to, to work an ultimate restoration and an ultimate healing of the mind of the body of the soul. Yeah, for sure. And it, and it may be God's perfect will that, uh, that you are healed in the midst of that, you know, sacramental experience. Yeah. There's, there's nothing, nothing to say that he can't or oh, won't. No, certainly not. But, uh, you know, this actually came from a Baptist pastor I heard one time, but you know, he, he was like, you know, God cares much more about your holiness than your comfort. Yeah. And, and God loving us sometimes chooses to not heal us. Right. Mm-hmm. In the, in the physical temporal sense, but doesn't mean that he's not working through it to transform our souls and to help us to become more like you know, Christ and to become holy. Yeah. Um, and this, this is, this next thing for me is a, a bit of a stretch and that I don't have like a, an Orthodox document in front of me telling me this, but in other services, like in confirmation, the, the application of oil, like when, when you're chrismated, it's, it's the stealing of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so I can't help but think that when you are, when you're, when you ask to be anointed as, you know, someone who is sick or suffering, that 
when that is placed on your your body that that sign of the cross with the oil the, the oil that's been blessed and that is holy that you're you're not being sealed because it's only a given to orthodox christians who have already been sealed but like father john can call me later and tell me i'm wrong <laughs> like now you're suffering is sealed unto God. Now right. it's holy too. Sure. Um, I mean, of I course, can, that, that I, doesn't I, make I, it go away or make you feel better right away. Right, but right. But it's still something. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, I mean, it makes sense. And what's what's more ordinary and mundane in this world than suffering? For sure. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. All right. Well, I I think that. For me, kind of brings the or closes the the book on uh, on anointing of the sick on on holy unction. Anything we still got uh, the holy order to talk about and, and a little bit of a fun topic to kind of uh, put in the middle is like an intermission. Anything else? Any other thoughts, Adam, on uh, on the anointing of the sick? Um, I don't think so. I, I you know for for Catholics, it's uh, it's said to be for anything more than the common cold. At least that's kind of the modern way that we explain it. So just an encouragement to any Catholic listeners out there. Uh, it's kind of like confession or any of those other things, you know, that uh, so many times people don't avail themselves of, uh, you know, do it. You know, if you have the opportunity, the priest is around or you need to call and uh, don't don't waste the opportunity to experience God's grace. You know, it's it's always it's always there and available. And I think uh, I think we we sell ourselves short as practicing Catholics so many times because we we just get so used to it being there that we don't always take advantage of it. So anybody's listening, you're Catholic. Uh, don't forget about it. It's, it's a, it's a good and beautiful thing that God's given to you through his church. So don't, uh, don't waste it. Yeah, that's, that's a good thought. I, I, I assume that is happened in the Orthodox church as well as it. We missed a, a service the other day because we had some sickness uh, just basically just in colds and I texted the priest and let him know. And he's like, all right, well, it's like, well, you know, if it gets, people don't get to feel them better, it gets worse. He's like, just let me know. And I, I can come, you know, and bring the oil and pray and anoint. And I was like, mm. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was like, I forgot that was a thing. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, we will talk uh, about the, uh, the Holy orders here in a minute, but to kind of break it up because it's sort of in the cultural and I'm probably going to mispronounce this word because I, I taught myself to read, but sort of in the cultural zeitgeist. Is that Ooh. correct, Adam? That's how you say it. Yep. Okay, sweet. Uh, but that is the show um, which you and I both finished recently, WandaVision. And and, I, and we're both pretty big nerds, uh, I think. Uh, we both yeah. have really enjoyed the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And um, I think we're both pretty regular weekly watchers of this their first foray into um uh into sort of a premiere television events um but uh before we before we dive in just like yeah how crazy is it that we've gotten to the point in pop culture whatever whatever you want to call it that somebody can make a tv show just assuming and taking for granted that the vast majority of their audience, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, are familiar with the past 10 years of their work. <laughs> like, is that not insane? Like, it's, it, it's just, it's such a 
cultural it's just such a part of our cultural DNA like one particular studio's production over the last 10 years is such a part of our culture and the way we think and talk about entertainment that it's just assumed that hey we can throw out this TV show we can put all these things in it and references and all this kind of stuff and people they'll just know yeah yeah like it's just it's insane i got i was thinking about that the other day and uh like trying to f- kind of put a put into my w- mind like the framework or trying to understand or speculate i guess about what it's kevin feige right the the head of yeah yeah uh, mm-hmm. the mcu like kind of his at this point my opinion is that with um one division and the winter soldier and all this kind of stuff there they they really did they they came to an end with in game you know mm-hmm. and so they're having to whether it's through tv shows or movies set up these new characters so that they can do it again yeah you know used to you had a trilogy it was all about one character and then you get to the end of that trilogy and then like maybe 10 years later they'd reboot it you know or they would uh you know, do something new with that character or try to reintroduce the story or something like that. But now it's like, no, we're going to reintroduce 20 movies. Like, you know, does, that, does that make yeah. sense? It's like, yeah. it's like, it's just, it, this is, this is so new to entertainment on a scale that's so massive. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it really is kind of mind boggling how, how different this is. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't think until I sat down and was really trying to think through it that I realized like, this really has never been done before. Like mm-hmm. this is this is so different. Yeah, it's it's crazy what uh what Kevin Feige and Marvel have have accomplished. Um and to think you could say, look, there's this really great show you should go watch, only nine episodes, but it's about this woman who has these really strange powers that might be a witch, and then this uh sort of <laughs> synthesoid carbon-based synthesoid who's very uh very human-like but not quite human but maybe plenty human enough and there's also this massive um government agency uh, a random fbi agent um and at the end you're gonna get a cameo from an alien race um pointing to it's gonna point at the sky when they do, you're gonna know they're talking about this guy with that right. eye patch. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's it's crazy, and and I think, um, I mean, I really enjoyed Wandavision. I have I have a few, um, well, uh, I, I, to me, when I talk about when I look and see, you know, is this a good story? Um, before I start talking about, you know, did I think they told the story really well? It's just from a storytelling standpoint did the storyteller keep their promises mm-hmm. um you know if they if they set up something in the first half the first act the second act like did they keep their promises not necessarily did they tie up every single possible loose end but you know if they told you to expect a showdown between um one version of vision that is basic i call him when i talk about i call him dream vision because he's not actually real he's like this living dream if they 
they promise you a showdown between Dream Vision and major spoilers, by the way, everybody. Uh, you hadn't figured that out already. <laughs> they, if they set up a, a fight between Dream Vision and then White Vision, do they give that to you? You know, if they set up this sure. this moment where Wanda has this realization of, of how much grief and trauma she's been carrying around, do they give that to you? And, and how much and, she's caused. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how much she's caused. Um, and I really feel like the, the storytellers set up you know, set up the, the dominoes, set up the pieces, the first few episodes, really how brave, like, I don't know if brave is the right word, but just like how crazy is it that you're going to start this series with three straight episodes that are 90% parroting, uh, you know, famous, well-known sitcoms from 60 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. And you're only going to sort of tease this outside world in these little tiny moments. And you're just going to trust that you're going to imitate famous sitcoms well enough that people are going to stick around for episodes four five and six, when you really mm. start to get into the heart of the story. Sure. And they, and they, cause those three episodes, I love those first three episodes. Yeah, they're great. Um, I think the first episode is one of my favorite. I, I love the Dick Van Dyke show, which is what it's, it's paying obvious homage to. And right. Um, like watching that first show is like, I would watch this version of WandaVision. That's just a sitcom starring, you know, <laughs> Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen playing right. vision and Wanda in 19, in the 1950s, pretending to be Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. Right. Um, but I really love the show. I thought it handled its themes really well. I thought the resolution was good. It didn't really feel cheap. Um, I mean, I've got I've got some small quibbles, uh, and then but kind of g- give us one of those quibbles. What 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 would be a, a quibble of the last? I'm just assuming we're going to talk about the last episode. Yeah, yeah, or... kind of with the finale and how how it wrapped it up. Um, well, two of them, and it kind of goes into what you were talking about with sort of just sitting back and thinking about what all Marvel's done. Um, one of them is. Uh, you know, she, Monica, who's, um, you know, uh, this sword agent, she kept mentioning two or three times. She made this like direct explicit reference to her friend. Like, Oh, I have an air. I have a friend who's an aerospace engineer who would love, who could solve this problem. And, and probably mostly because it's Marvel. Like we expect that to be some sort of cameo or an Easter egg where you find out she's referencing well-known superhero X, you know, Right. And they never gave that to us. Um, but that it didn't hurt the story. Like that wasn't a necessary story element or plot that they just let go. Mm. Um, I did feel like they did that twice once with that. And once with the whole, the whole reason they found out anything was going on in Westview was because Jimmy Woo, who I, I loved yeah. absolutely. Um, had somebody a witness protection program in that town and we never found out who that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, not really relevant to the story. I thought it was going to be relevant to the story and it ends up just sort of being the, the conceit they use to get you to the the town. Um, so those, those are pretty small. The, the two that are, are a little bigger, uh, one of which I half quibble with and half really admire the other one, which I think is uh, something they probably should have handled a little better. Um, but they cast Evan Peters, who played mm-hmm. Quicksilver in the X-Men movies, to play um, 
the fake version of Wanda's brother, Pietro. Right. Um, which on the one hand, part of me is like, it's so infuriating for you to cast this guy as fake Pietro and then never really do anything with the fact that he's an X-Men. Um, you know, cause a lot of people are like, well, did, did she like pull him in from this alternate universe? And it turns out right. none of that happened. He was just some random guy that lived in Westview. So I have a theory about this actually. Okay. So well, my theory, yeah, theory. Okay. My theory is that agent, is it woo? Yeah. Right? That, that was his, um, his witness, his witness. So like, it's like, my thought is it's going to, like, it's just random theory, but like, the Doctor Strange multiverse movie. Yeah. Right. That somehow that at that starts here or it started even before WandaVision with f- fake Pietro mm-hmm. and that he got placed there. Right. And Wu was in charge of watching out for it. Okay. I don't Maybe. know. Maybe I can see pass. that. Don't know what'll yeah. happen. Just throwing that out there. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. So that that's sort of my like my quibble with is like oh that's yeah. just sort of like toying with the fans, but also I, I think it was really really smart because when she opened the door at the end of episode was it episode five I think where he showed up mm. episode five or six maybe yeah. six when oh. she opens the door like they had to have somebody there the audience was going to react to. And they Ooh. couldn't cast Aaron Taylor Johnson, the the guy that played Pietro in uh, Age of Ultron, because then it would be her it, it it would be her brother. So they had to cast somebody that the audience, or at least a, a good portion of the audience, it would react to, and have some sort of feeling similar to what Wanda was supposed to be feeling in that moment, where part of her thinks this is my brother, but then part of her is like this is not my brother to sort of mimic her confusion. Mm. And really the only thing you could, you couldn't just cast some random guy because we'd all be like, well, we know that's not her brother. Mm-hmm. So you cast this guy who played a different version of her brother in a whole different cinematic universe to sort of create in the audience, this sense of, Whoa, what's going on here? This is almost right, but it's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Which is, is the, I think what Wanda was supposed to be feeling I think it was really the only casting choice that made sense to sort of help make sure the audience was going on that journey with her. Sure. That makes sense. So, um, so then at the end you find out he's just like random guy, Ralph and part of him was like, Oh man, I I don't want random guy, Ralph. I want him to, you know, I want it to be something because you cast freaking Evan Peters (laughs) from (laughs) the X-Men. But, but at the same time, the more I think about it, it's something like I really, really think that was a, a smart choice because I mm. don't really know how else you you get that visceral reaction you want the audience to have sure. so they understand what Wanda's having. That makes sense. Um, there's so many things that I liked. Uh, the, the other thing that I, I'm, I don't know what they should have really done differently, but it does feel odd that she just walked away at the end. Without any, like, consequences? Yeah. You know, like, somebody mentions, like, you know, she's walked away without sort of any sort of repairing or making anything better. And, and I'm like, well, I don't really know what she could have – nothing she could have done. Right. Um, somebody mentioned, I think, on, on Twitter, like, well, she could have fixed the buildings that were broken. And I'm like, I don't think she can. Like, or if she can, she doesn't really know how. She's never done that before. Right. 
and everything the only stuff that we see her fix in the show like she throws monica through the through the house and outside the hex and then fixes the house but that is the house that she constructed with like her own mind mm-hmm. and it's within the the hex kind of the bubble that she's built we've never seen her manipulate thing or like manipulate things to that level outside of her hex like we don't right. see her, her repair buildings or anything like that and age of Ultron or civil war or, or any of other films. Sure. Yeah. Her, her powers mainly revolve around people's perception. I mean, yeah. I think there's at least an extent where she has some sort of telekinetic, uh, you know, ability. Yeah, she can, yeah. you know, stop stuff from crashing down on top of somebody else or whatever, but it's primarily like, uh, you know, people's ability to, of what they perceive. Yeah. Which is the whole point of the, like, it's the whole point of the hex, right? Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. change perception. So yeah, I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't know that. Uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I don't really know. It what did. She it done. did feel a little easy. And somebody with somebody said, you know, she could have gotten like sat sat down and them question her or something. But and, and I get and and agree with the idea that it feels like she just did all that, even though didn't really seem like she meant to or realized she was doing it for a good portion of the show. Um, or really fully understood what was going on or what she was doing to other people. But at the same time, it, it feels a little, un, it feels a little cheap for her just to kind of walk away. But then also like, who's going to stop her? Right. If she doesn't want to answer questions, she's not going to answer questions. Right. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, we we really, really, Kelly and I really, really enjoyed watching it. Uh, Gabrielle, my daughter, is she started watching it with us, and she got behind, so she's been trying to catch up. Uh, she's really enjoying it, although she has no idea who Wanda and Vision are. She hasn't watched Age of Ultron or anything. After oh, that gotcha. Yet. But she's she's she loves the Dick Van Dyke show, so she was all about it when she started. <laughs> um, do you think? Do you think Wanda will be a villain in a later MCU film or series? I don't think so. I I might could see how she might be an anti-hero at least yeah. kind of kind of like Loki a little bit like Yeah, yeah. You know, he's who he's, was a villain in an Avengers film is like point that out. That's true. That's true. Um but his overarching, like his, I mean, he's a, the villain in uh, Thor too, the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. You kind of get the feeling that he's also like, yeah, he's selfish. But and so even when he does good things, he's doing it. He's got some ulterior motive, but. He does do good things, you know, like the, yeah. it's, it's kind of like this weird gray middle ground somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I could see that. But I, I also I, I kind of get the again, this is probably just speculation, but I, I wonder if she's not meant to replace one of the original Avengers like uh, or maybe not even an original Avenger. But I mean, how much longer can you really keep Benedict Cumberpatch um, and pay him to keep showing up? Yeah, You know, so it's pretty obvious to me that, you know, Spider-Man uh, with the last movie is kind of, they're kind of trying to set him up as the, the tech genius, right? Because he is smart, 
Um, he's kind of like a, I, I, I get the feeling he's kind of like an heir to Tony Stark. I feel like they're just trying to, to start over. So you have to have like these key character types. So she'd uh, almost be like kind of the Thor character a little bit. Yeah, Thor, uh, Doctor Strange. I, I don't know that there's a way to, you can't, there's not, it's not a, it's not a cookie cutter, right? Like you can't yeah. just take one person out and put another person right back in. But there's certain types of characters that you kind of need if you're going to have an Avengers type of team. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder if that's not the role she's meant to play in the coming, you know, MCU. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to, to take the opposite tact and I'm going to say not only do I think she'll be a villain at some point, I think she will be, well, I think they're considering, I don't know if they've thought that far ahead, but I think there's a very good possibility that she will be not just a villain, but sort of be the next Thanos. Hmm. Um, and I base that on this very, very slim evidence. <laughs> uh, one, there was like, well, two things. One, Agatha talked about how like, you know, Scarlet Witch is so powerful, something about being destined to destroy the world. But the main thing was how similar the end of the show, that the end credit scene with her in the cabin, how similar that was mm-hmm. to the final scene or one of the final scenes in The Incredible Hulk, uh, which is like the forgotten Marvel movie. Right. Um, and back then, there's a lot of talk about they were setting up Hulk to be the villain in Avengers. Hmm. Um, that he was like going to go kind of go bad, go rogue, maybe like Loki, he was going to be under the control of Loki. But at the end of the incredible Hulk, he's literally in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. I, at first watching WandaVision, I thought, is that the same cabin from the incredible Hulk? I don't think it is. Um, but the end of that movie is him sort of in a meditative pose. And then like, you see a little counter like days without incident drop down to zero and it like zooms in on his face and he opens his eyes and his eyes turn green and he has this sort of wicked smile where it's, where it gives you the impression that he's learned to control the Hulk and not really in a good way. Like it's Mm. not good for him. And that was so similar to how WandaVision ended where it pans to the back room. She's there sort of in a quasi meditative pose studying the dark hold. And then it slowly kind of pushes in, zooms in on her face. She hears her kids crying and her eyes snap open and they glow red. And then she like whooshes off. And my Mm -hmm. first thought was, man, that feels a lot like the Incredible Hulk back when they were trying to decide or back when they were Mm -hmm. thinking maybe he's going to be the bad guy. Hmm. Um, So anyway, that's that's my theory on uh, on it, that she will be a, a villain. And I think I think my thought would be. Not right away. Like she's going to be kind of torn back and forth and she's going to end up being mostly good, but then something's going to happen and that the next big sort of Avengers in-game type event is going to be major Scarlet Witch reality bending kind of thing. Hmm. So, Maybe so. Anyway, my, my two cents. But hey, enough about that. Let's talk about bishops and priests and deacons. And stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, uh, so bishops and priests and deacons and stuff. Yes, this is where this is one of the places where um, I think the differences between orthodoxy and, and and Catholicism are a little bit more obvious. In that, 
we all we both have deacons and priests and bishops um but the catholic church at least seems to be much more organized and much more um like the hierarchy is very it seems to be very defined very set um and, and whereas in, in the orthodox church it's we still we have bishops and we have priests and we have deacons and there is a, a, a hierarchy of the bishop is over ideally in, in, in a place that, you know, like if all the churches were Orthodox, instead of there being like Orthodox and Baptist churches and Pentecostal church and all the other things, then like each city would have a bishop over it. And then each sort of local church within the city would have a priest, um, but the basically in Orthodox Church, the bishop is the presiding sort of clergy over a, over a metropolitan like a, a city, mm-hmm. and then the the priest that's called the metropolitan is the one who sits in like the biggest city in the area. So, like in Arkansas, the metropolitan, if all things were as they you know in theory would be, there'd be a bishop over Fayetteville, bishop over Springdale, Rogers, Bentonville, and there'd be a metropolitan probably in Little Rock because it's the capital city of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, but so is, it, is the metropolitan bishop over the other bishops? He is honored. So when the, all the bishops come together, he is sort of seated at the head of the table. He's given a lot of deference and a lot of honor, but he does not have uh, sort of the authority to go to um, another bishop and just kind of tell them what to do. Okay. So, but from what I gather, bishops can tell priests what to do, but bishops can't tell other bishops what to do. Can bishops tell other bishops, priests what to do? Uh, no, not, okay. I, they do, I believe, <laughs> but they're not supposed to. Okay. okay. There was a, a city, um, that I know of where there's, uh, I forget one, there's an Orthodox church that's a little bit more prominent, a little bit more established there, um, and there's there's like a I, I forget it's Russian Greek Antiochian, and then there's like an Orthodox Church of America there, and the priest in that OCA parish is very deferential to the more established Orthodox Church, um, just sort of out of respect. So I don't think he gets told what to do. I, mm-hmm. He doesn't get told what to do, but he definitely he talks to that other priest and that other bishop a lot um, because they've they've been there a long time and, and he wants to be, be respectful of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, Orthodox can have turf wars just like Baptist can, I imagine. Sure. But there are, sure. put their minds to it. They can. Right. So, okay. but, but, but Catholicism, at least from, from my perspective, looking at it, it seems a little bit more, is it more defined? Is there, is there, here's a question. It's mm-hmm. probably a dumb question. Are there offices other than like, deacon and priest and bishop because i know there are, there are cardinals but i don't honestly know what a cardinal is in the catholic church okay yeah cardinal eh, it don't really come into this conversation i don't think they um okay they it's called the college of cardinals so when the pope uh wants to call it's almost like a group of advisors almost um he has, but they're all they're all bishops. Okay. Uh, they all have their own diocese, from what I understand, so on and so forth. So, 
I I think we're we may be pretty similar in that it's more about geographical area and limits of ability to rightly govern uh, a given geographical area. So, for instance, um, you have the Diocese of Little Rock, Mm -hmm. which is the diocese over the whole state of Arkansas. So it it doesn't reach outside of the state line, right? It's all within the state. We have one bishop. Bishop uh, Bishop Taylor, and he's in charge of the whole state and the priests and all the different churches. You know they they answer to him. However, and and he has you know he has uh, for the sake of governance and things like that. He has priests that work for him that help you know have different roles and responsibilities within the diocese that's not pastoring a church, right? Just to help administratively. But um, he's the only bishop in the state. Okay. Whereas if you go to somewhere like California, right? Why would you do that? I don't know. Most people <laughs> most people are leaving. But um, if you go somewhere like California, you have a diocese that may only oversee one city like you're talking yeah. about yeah. just because there's so many people and there's, mm-hmm. it would be, it would, it would be impossible for one Bishop to oversee anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it just depends on the need when you live in a state that's very rural, like Arkansas or Louisiana or, and actually Louisiana, I think has a couple different dioceses uh, actually. Well, so those, I mean, it's going to take at least, it's got like new Orleans is going to get its own because it's got enough trouble that, you can't take care of New Orleans and any other part of Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and and Louisiana's a Catholic population is way higher than any other state. Oh in, yeah, in the country. Um, so it's just it's a lot. Uh, but uh, one bishop, like the and Oklahoma's divided into two dioceses. Actually, uh, you've got the diocese of Oklahoma City and the diocese of Tulsa. Tulsa's everything in. Uh, East Oklahoma, Eastern Oklahoma, and then Oklahoma City is everything from Oklahoma City West. Uh, and again, it just comes down to population. Yeah. You know, what can you control? But in Oklahoma, one bishop can't tell the other bishop what to do. Okay. So they're they're on, you know, equal footings equal footing. as, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to authority in their diocese. And uh, the priests in one diocese they answer to their bishop and the priests in the other diocese answered to their own. Uh, then we have a United States college of Catholic Bishop USCCB, I think. Um, and it's, 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 uh, for America, it's kind of like, a I don't know. It's a, it's a college of bishops for America. So they, they get together, they, you know, have a, they elect a president or whatever, I don't know what they call them, but they have meetings and they, they vote on things and decide together collegially, right? Is that the mm-hmm. word? Collegially? Collegi- Sounds good. Collegiately? I don't know. They just, you know, they, they can make some decisions together as a group, like, hey, what are we going to, you know, what, we're all in the same country, all of our people speak the same language, you know, mostly, um, we want to be unified on how we 
practice and yeah, yeah so that when people cross state lines or from one diocese to the next that there's some continuity so what are we going to do you know um but yeah i don't, I don't know if they met that i hope that makes sense but that's kind of how it's yeah. set up in a in a general rule as a general rule um so is because i've seen um like i've seen people report on you know the the uc whatever the the acronym is like you know they released this statement or they released kind of kind of this guidance is that is that binding in any sense or is it really just sort of advisory like if basically like if there are 10 bishops and eight of them vote we're going to do we're going to say this and two of them say i we don't agree with that and they issue it like those eight bishops that voted for it, I assume, are going to go and, you know, implement it in some way, you know, right. in their diocese. What about the two that voted against it? Like, do they have to as well, or do they not? My, my understanding is they have the right to do what they want in their diocese. Okay. Now, the problem could cause such a stir that, uh, for whatever reason— you know, maybe it's a like a doctrinal or a theological issue that could get kicked up to Rome, right? Where uh, decisions have to be made about you know the standing of that bishop and what's going to happen. But as a general rule, no, it's more of a it's more of a just a okay. We want to be unified where we can be, and so you know we're going to try to have one voice in America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we're going to try to be united on these things and these issues and uh, how we speak and how we define things in, you know, in our own culture where we have, you know, where we have the freedom to do so from a, you know, church authority standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say the USCCP came out and said, yeah, we support, you know, I don't know, something that's non non-binding, like, um, or something that's a, a little T tradition that the church gives wiggle room on. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, let's say Bishop, a Bishop from Texas, you know, go Texas said, no, nah, I don't think we're going to do that. He has the right to do it. He has the right to say no. Okay. Within his diocese. Again, assuming that it's not a, you know, well, like uh, a dogma thing, you know, right. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, we talked a little bit, I think before about the Catholic sort of hierarchy. Um, I don't want to say power structure, that sounds weird, but it's very sort of from the top down, like the, the Pope, then the authority. Uh, and, and if I'm saying this incorrectly or, or screwing it up, let me know. Like, okay sort of descends like the it's in the Pope and the Pope sort of vests it's in the bishops who then invest in the priest. Like a priest can't, uh, I think you've said before, a priest can't, you know, administer the sacraments except that the bishop has given him basically the, the authority to do so. Am I, am I saying that at all correct? Or am I, yeah, am I that's, that's fair. I mean, the, the priest, the priest, lives out his vocation under the authority of the bishop. Yes. Okay. Okay. But there there are you know, there are certain things that are innate to being a priest, 
right? Like you can you can uh, absolve sins, for instance. Yeah. Right. But he he exercises his authority under the authority of the bishop. Under the authority of the bishop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, because I I was wondering like what, and and the Orthodox it's it's similar in that the the bishop has authority over the priest as far as you know like he assigns the priest to serve at a certain parish at a certain mm-hmm. church it's his decision if they stay there his decision if they move his decision right. if the the priest you know is removed from the pastorate and perhaps serves you know in, in another role uh it's his decision if something happens to because uh, i don't remember i don't know if suspend is the right word but he can suspend the priest mm-hmm. um <clears throat> But there's also a role in, in Orthodox. The, the congregation is the one who, um, like, when the priest is going through the process of ordination, there's a moment where the congregation is essentially asked, is he worthy? And the congregation says, yes, he is worthy. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't found many instances of where it happened, but I've read in a couple of sources that, in theory at least, if the congregation were to say, no, he is not worthy, he, he would not be a priest. Okay. So is there any, cause again, I think they're, they're similar in that both of them like this, the Bishop has, you know, some kind of authority over the priests, but is there, this may be an awkward or maybe I'm phrasing the question wrong, but is there a role that the congregation of the parish plays in it? And, and as far as obviously the, the Bishop, is the one who chooses which priest serves where, so the congregation doesn't get to decide that. But is there any role? Like, does the does the power go all the way down to the people? <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better term, sure. um, or, or or no? Uh, you know, I'm, I'd, honestly, I I'm going to have to defer on that question. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, and and, and I I didn't know. I mean, I I, I know that that ultimately, right? Like, uh, I think. Paul says to Titus, no, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands, right? Mm-hmm. There is this very defined and understood idea that when a priest is ordained, it is through the laying on of hands from the bishop. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so the congregation doesn't do that, right? Like the yeah. The, yeah. I think from what I understand, you know, like local local churches, you know, they um, they help support and uh, the local priest, you know, of the particular diocese, you know, there's there's a long process of discernment that takes place when before somebody's admitted to seminary, right? to become to be trained as a priest but at the end of the day the bishop is the one that anoints him as priest right right and lays his hand on him um to infer you know the gift of the sacrament of holy orders yeah yeah and that's and i know if it's not exactly the same the process and in the orthodox churches is, is similar but I'm just I'm kind of struck by the existence of that moment where the congregation, in theory, the congregation where this this guy who's being ordained to the priesthood has lived, he's been a part of it. Like they know mm-hmm. him, you know, sure. 
and they have this voice to say like yes yes or like no like why are you why are you ordaining him to the priesthood he sure. is a terrible choice don't do this <laughs> <laughs> and so i wondered uh if if there was a moment like that in in the catholic uh catholic service as well I, i'm not i'm not sure i would imagine there has to be something similar to it whether it's uh a representative from his church or whether it's you know uh, a sponsor of some kind so i'm I'm sponsoring a friend of mine who's joining the church at Easter and I have to be there to give assent, right? Like mm-hmm. when um, the right of election takes place, I have to be there to say, I affirm that he is, you know, basically, I don't know the exact words, but I, as a, as a Catholic in good standing, I affirm that he is genuine in his pursuit of, Christ and his, you know, desire to join the church and to live according to its principles and that he's, you know, striving where God has him to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 again, I just would imagine, I would imagine it's some, there has to be something similar to that for priests, but again, I, I don't know exactly the liturgy that's involved there and what exactly is said and uh, not said and those types, types that type gotcha. of stuff. I gotcha. I yeah. gotcha. All right. Well, um, I don't guess we've said anything really as to why these. You you mentioned that passage in Timothy, uh, which is is often pointed to as where you see all three levels of the clergy represented, like the those who you know the elders who lay the hands upon the. Um, well, I forget the terms that are used, but you see all three sort of levels of the clergy represented in that and in, in right there close to each other in that passage in Timothy. Um, and it's the deacons, the elders and the overseers, I think is the mm-hmm. other one. Yeah. Uh, and, and you see three, three layers there, three levels. Um, and, and it was, I remember, I, I think it was Titus. You see something similar in Titus as well. I think all three offices are mentioned. And I remember teaching through Titus as I was at this point where I like I know I'm I'm about to have to to walk away from all this because I'm not Baptist anymore, and getting to these references to deacons and overseas and and, and elders, and we're doing like a video series. And listening to the guy in the video say, well, this is what that means. And me thinking like, oh, I don't think that's what that means, man. I don't think it's what that means. And and mm. literally praying before Bible studies, like, please do not have one of these people <laughs> ask me. Because I don't think I can give an I don't think I can give an honest Baptist answer. Sure. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, it, it's... And we don't have as much to say. Again, we, we put these two together for a reason because we didn't have quite as much to say yeah. uh, on either one. Uh, sure. But any any other thoughts on on sort of the, the holy orders and uh, the yeah. offices? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one, again, kind of in the spirit of earlier in the podcast about presuppositions, just to be completely transparent with everybody, uh, I really do believe that there's a difference in Scripture between descriptive and prescriptive texts. And when it comes to the hierarchy in the church, whether you're talking about Orthodox or Catholic, 
there's not really a place in Scripture where it says, okay, you need to have something called a bishop, and he's going to be over a particular geographical or uh, metropolitan area, and then he's going to have priests under him, and the priests are going to have deacons to help serve, you know, mm-hmm. help them serve. Mm-hmm. Like, they're this clearly defined and, uh, you know, executed process is not it's not laid out in the New Testament uh, not the way that we've come to understand it and see it in our right. respective traditions I would also argue it's not <laughs> laid out anywhere in scripture the way that most Southern Baptist churches or maybe any Southern Baptist church that I've ever been a part of has their church structured Right. So this is where tradition, that horrible word to Protestants, becomes really, really important because there's this this testimony of how things were practiced in the early church, that it was set up in a particular way that when they explained these passages like Titus and Timothy and so on and so forth, they just, again, they took for granted that, yeah, we're, we're doing that. So you need to know what those people did in the first, second, third centuries that they looked at what they were doing. They looked at the system that they had put in place that the, the apostles and their successors had put in place and looked at it and said, yeah, this is what, this is what Christ wants for his church. Yeah. Right. And um, so the way that these passages that are maybe descriptive more than they're prescriptive, uh, they just kind of describe, okay, you've got these three roles, but okay, how do these roles relate to one another? Well, he doesn't really say. So we need to know how did the people that read that, how did they practice it? Like, how did they understand Paul's words? Like, when they read it, how did it get lived out? And yeah. That, that's why tradition matters, or, or at least <laughs> it's one of the reasons why tradition matters, mm. because there are a lot of things that, um, you know, a Baptist or a Protestant could look and say, well, you've got, you know, the system set up, but where do you find that in Scripture? Well, uh, we don't, like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's the simple answer. Like, we don't in the way that you want us to, right? right? But neither do you. Like, this, this everybody looks at these passages and they try to, you know, every denomination uh, that I've ever been a part of or been around in the Protestant world, they all have different opinions about right. what, what really is the role of a pastor or a deacon or whatever this overseer is supposed to be. You know, um, how do they relate? And you go from one strain of Baptist to another strain of Baptist, and in one strain, deacons pretty much call the shots. You know, in another strain, yeah, it's it's elders. But what does that mean? You know, like is an elder a, a pastor or a preacher or is he like what is it? You know, so there's just there's and then you go from Baptist to Methodist, Methodist, Anglican, Anglican. To, there's all there's there's so many different. We all look at this text or these texts and think that we've got it right, and I think we just have to be really humble. And, and this is where I would argue you have to look at tradition. 
And you have to look at these early centuries in the church and say the people that were closest to it, how did they come to understand it right? and live it out? And that matters, you know, obviously, because we all disagree about it and we all argue about it all the time. So shouldn't the people closest to it have a voice? And in my study of all this, which is, I mean, take that for what it's worth. Um, I saw something that looks really, really similar to the more traditional practices of the faith, you know, where yeah. you had bishops that had authority, right, to to make decisions and to tell tell their churches what to do, you know, and yeah. churches and yeah. the, the churches listened to them, um, and priests who administered the sacraments and had very specific rules about who could touch the host and who couldn't and why and laying on of hands and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff is there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so anybody that's listening, I would just really encourage you to, to consider that, you know, this is one of those reasons why tradition matters because everybody can read the Bible on their own and, everybody can come to different conclusions and you can argue about who's right and who's wrong. And I just came to the point where I really was convinced that the early church deserved a voice in the discussion because they were closest to it. Yeah. And that it it really did matter how the people who sat under Paul understood his words Mm -hmm. and how they practiced their faith. Um, Second thing yeah, that was a long first thing. Sorry about that. <laughs> you um, the second thing is, I, I heard somebody, you know, say it this way again. Sacraments are means of God's grace in our lives to um, help us help us be saved, mm-hmm. right? And holy orders are no different, it, it, except that maybe. Uh, I guess like marriage, they are a means that when we participate in them, not only does God use it to help us become like Christ, but one of the primary things involved in it is through it, he uses us to help other people become like Christ. And so when I live out my vocation as a husband well, I'm helping my wife draw closer to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That's the goal. And hand in hand with that, when she lives out her vocation well, she's helping me to draw closer to Jesus. The priesthood is is not very indifferent to that, right? When a priest gives himself over to the vocation of holy orders, um, he is giving his life up for the sanctity of the church, for the sanctification of the body, for the good of the bride of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. So that he can administer the rest of the sacraments for her good so that he can offer up the holy sacrifice of the mass so that he, so he, he's giving up himself in this devotion to God, uh, by participating in holy orders. But it's, it's also the, the path that God has for him to be saved. Right. Um, and, A lot of times people, you know, 
I think in, in Catholic circles in particular, because most priests aren't allowed to be married at the same time. Yeah. Um, there's this kind of, okay, does God, is God calling me to married life, right? Or is he calling me to the vocation of the priesthood? And something I heard one time was that maybe a question that you need to ask is, what's the path of salvation? Like, what, what, what path does God want me to walk down because it's going to help me to be what he wants me to be? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in drawing close to him and being like Christ, being saved. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I felt like that was marriage. You know, like, I, I, I really did feel like God was saying, Adam, the way, at least at this point, you know, while I'm I'm married, uh, obviously, which is great, and I love being married. But I really felt like God was saying, Adam, the path to sanctity for you is to to be married. But it could be for someone else that God says the path to sanctity for you is to give yourself to the church. You know, um, yeah. and I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a a cool distinction, like. When we talk about vocations, when we talk about the sacrament of holy orders, uh, this is what God has called people to for the salvation of the church, you know, for the good of the bride. They they act in the person of Christ for the sake of God's beloved. Right? Mm. They are tangible representations of Christ giving himself to us, which is one of the reasons why women can't be priests. Um, we're, we're actually recording this on, uh, is it national or international woman's day? Yeah. yeah. Um, so not to, yeah, I know not to spite any, any women out there, but one of the reasons why women can't be priests, why they can't be deacons, why they can't be bishops is because bishops, priests, and deacons hold a unique position in the life of the church where they are the representations on earth of the bridegroom or the, yeah, the bridegroom. Right. Mm. And, and they're a picture of that. Well, women can't be the bridegroom. Right. Yeah. So if marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, right. God made male and femaleness, uh, to be, a picture, an image of something higher and eternal, right? Then we also have to consider that image, imagery in the life of the church. And these men that stand in the place of Christ on the behalf of the church and, and for the sake of the bride, right, they have to be men because women can't play the role of the bridegroom. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Um, I think I think that the Orthodox would definitely agree with regards to the bishop and the priest. I know at some point, uh, currently not, or so not currently, uh, are there women deacons? There have been in the past in Orthodox Church, and it's not something that's like a conceivably one day in the future there could be there could be women deacons again. Uh, right mm. now, there are not in, in the Orthodox Church. 
the sense I get is kind of like, well, we're not doing it right now. We're probably not going to do it again anytime soon because we don't want to cause a fuss. Um, sure. But there's not really like a, a that what what you talked about is applying to all three. I think is something the Orthodox definitely hold in regards to the priest and the bishop, but but maybe not the 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 office of deacon may be seen as a little different, a little separate because it does there there's there's not the as strict a prohibition on women deacons as as it it's not inconceivable i guess is a good way to put it that there mm. could be women deacons within the orthodox church while it is inconceivable that there would be women priests or women bishops i gotcha that makes sense um but but the way you described it especially with i think c.s lewis said something similar as well that uh when he when he was he wrote about the priest being reserved the priesthood being reserved for men and said you know, yes, a woman can stand with her <clears throat> with her back to the congregation and represent the church to Christ, but she cannot turn around and represent Christ to the church because mm. she is a woman and Christ is a man. Yeah, and that's like one of the more simple and yet kind of just cuts to the heart of it. Um, I think. Um, yeah, just leave it to C.S. Lewis to say it better than I did. Yeah, know? I mean, he's kind of a jerk that way. Kind of a jerk. A louse. It is funny though um, that he's such a louse. Uh, no, <laughs> that <laughs> in theory, or, or not really in theory, but like in practice, like the the, the bar against women being priests or bishops. And it's we should stop talking about this because it is International Women's Day. But the bar against women being priests and bishops in the Catholic and Orthodox churches is is a much stronger thing than women than the bar on women being like ministers in like baptist churches because baptist churches find all kinds of ways to get around that like well you mm. won't be a children's pastor be a children's minister and therefore mm. we're not having women pastors or we'll call you right. the children's director and yet in catholic and orthodox traditions and circles there are so many women held in high regard and the fact that they're not a priest or not a bishop is not important like you know the the easy answer is like mary theotokos like there's no one in the church no priest no bishop no apostle that is like mary that is like the theotokos like um as father john our priest told us when we were when we were taking christian names taking saint names it's like no one takes Mary, as in no one takes the Theotokos because she's she's too special for that, you know. Hmm. Um, now you can be Mary after Mary the sister of Lazarus, or you can be Mary after different Mary, but but no one takes on the saint name Mary and makes the Theotokos their patron saint because it's just like yeah, you can't do that with her. She's like she's hmm. too special for that. She's she's like a, a a level above the apostles and and you can take an apostle's name and you can take an an, an angel's archangel's name like Gabrielle is is Gabriel but no you can't can't have Mary because she's she's the Theotokos she, she right. doesn't work that doesn't work that way so while i see in like in baptist circles and reform circles this this tension this real struggle of well we're, we like women pastors no and then trying to seemingly trying to find a having a really difficult time of finding ways to honor women and really acknowledge that women are 100% essential to the church 
when they're also barring them from the pastorate, whereas the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, which has really a stronger bar against women and the priesthood and the, and, and the bishops, like, there's no difficulty in honoring women and, like, exalting them in a sense of mm-hmm. venerating them in our hymns and prayers and, and things like that. Right. Um, so there's probably another podcast to be had there. I'm not sure what, but I've, I've been thinking about that recently. Um, just how I think I told someone is like, you can't, you could not possibly have the church if you didn't have women. Like if mm-hmm. you can tell your church's history and your church's story without talking about women, then something's wrong with the way you built your church. Mm-hmm. doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the holy orders but it did when i started <laughs> well i mean it's just it's just to say that god god's desire in all the sacraments is for redemption and the different roles that different people play it's all about not only being redemptive but also painting a picture of redemption mm. through the way that that sacraments lived out so it it's a sign and a symbol. It's it's both. It's a symbol of redemption, right? You can look at it and say, "Oh yeah, that reminds me of X." But it's also a sign, meaning it is the thing through which redemption comes too, or at least one of the things through which God communicates his redemption. And the priesthood um being a bishop, a deacon, they hold a unique place in that uh, economy of salvation. And it should be respected and appreciated for what it is, um, for the the sacredness of it, for the thought that's put in it. Um, and, you know, just we should all have a lot of gratitude for the roles that these men play in giving up uh, so much for us for the sake of our souls, right? Whether you're Catholic or Orthodox, there's a lot of rules that go into, you know, how they're supposed to live their lives and be devoted to prayer and things like that on a level that most of us aren't bound to. Um, Mm. And, and it needs to be recognized and it needs to be appreciated for what it is. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. The, the, the way that God calls these men and sets them apart. Uh, to be his representatives for the church um, and to communicate the bridegroom's love for the bride is a pretty, is a pretty beautiful and powerful thing. Yeah, it is. I love what you said that the sacraments are not only redemptive, but they paint a picture. They paint a picture of redemption. Mm. I think that's such a really, really beautiful and, and illustrative way to put it. They are they are redemptive, and they also paint a pic. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting all choked up. Um, they are redemptive, and they paint a picture of redemption. I, I think that that puts it so well. So, mm. let's just end it there. Sounds good. All right. Well, Adam, man, thanks so much for coming and uh, hanging out with me and talking about um, anointing of the sick and holy orders and a little bit about Wandavision and. 
audience, thank you so much for hanging out with us as well. We're almost done with the series on the sacraments. Next episode will be on the Eucharist. And after that, like, we don't know what we're going to do next. We're open. So if you've got something you'd like us to talk about theologically, or even, even if it doesn't really, it isn't necessarily a theological question, but like, how do you approach something as a Catholic or as an Orthodox? Uh, and we can't speak for all Catholics or all Orthodox, but I mean, the journey to Orthodoxy has certainly shaped how I view things that aren't strictly theological, like social issues and political issues and, and things like that. So right. audience, if you've got a question for us, you, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Uh, we have an email address that no one, not even the spammers have found yet. Uh, <laughs> that is this heretical life at gmail.com. All one word, this heretical life at gmail.com. So shoot us an email if you've got a question or a comment, like I said, we're wrapping up this series in the sacraments pretty soon and we'll need more things to talk about uh, soon after. So leave us a question, leave us a comment. We're on iTunes, other uh, podcast apps. Leave us a review. If you like us, leave us a review. If you don't, and maybe we'll send you money uh, to, you know, to buy an indulgence to cover the fact that you lied. I think, I don't know how that works. Maybe I don't <laughs> talk about that in another episode. <laughs> But uh, but thanks so much for being here, audience. Adam, man, it's always fun. Thanks so much for hanging out yeah. with me. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Yes, sir. All right. Well, good night to you and good night to the internet. <laughs>